0: Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. I'm Eric Burnham. With me is Ethan Colchimiro. This is another Daily Bugle special edition, a break from our normal format where we're not breaking down one of the Spider-Man films into four parts and deeply analyzing. No, this one is just a reaction to No Way Home, the third part of the Homecoming trilogy, which we just finally both saw. And, uh, you know, we wanted to geek out about it a little bit. So uh, basically, um, I loved it. Ethan, what did you think? I loved it. All right. That's our show, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Webhead Podcast. We'll catch you later. Okay. Obviously, I was kidding. We have more to talk about. I think it was the movie that uh, the world needed after two years of pandemic. It was a huge reaction, a huge pop for returning Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire, and Andrew Garfield. Spoilers, but you knew that was coming, and you probably heard about it anyway. Anyhow, let's talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. So many people were like, oh, between the trailer and all the spoilers and all the leaks, we know everything that's going to happen. And really, what surprised me when I sat down and finally got to watch it, all of the leaks of the movie comprised maybe the last half hour. And that was it. Everything else was a delightful surprise.
1: That's what's amazing, no pun intended, uh, about the film, is that with all the stuff that we expected to happen, there was so much more to discover and enjoy and experience and that's just really a testament to not only how how jam packed this movie is, but just uh, what a great story they delivered for us.
0: The thing that got me immediately after I saw the movie, I saw a tweet that said, "Son of a gun! This whole trilogy was a backdoor origin, and mm-hmm. it was." I did. I mean, they they built up over what seven or eight hours. What had been the the eight page, twelve page amazing fantasy story? Peter getting his powers, Peter using his powers, uh, a beloved relative dying, him learning the the lesson of with great power there must always come great responsibility, and then we move on. And that took place over the course of three movies, and yeah. there were several several uh, angry fans. You know, the Iron Man Junior. Eh? Those fans who were eating a lot of crow once the uh, the end credits finally rolled on this one.
1: It's really remarkable the way that you know they eventually got us to the classic Peter Parker of the comic books because, like you said, while some people loved it, there was some belly aching of like, oh, he's not the. The kid, you know, making it on his own steam anymore, to to quote Norman Osborn. You know, he's he's not sewing the costume together. He's got a multi-million dollar costume. He's got access to Stark technology. He can call an Avenger whenever he wants to. All of these things, which, you know, if you read the comics long enough, it did get there anyway. However... When I think about these three movies, uh, solo films, and then you know the, the the three films that this version of Peter appeared in, I just keep hearing Lin Manuel Miranda from Hamilton just, go, just you wait, just you wait, because by the end of this, they got him to where we all sort of expected him to be, without skipping the realities of the world they brought him into. They brought him into the Marvel universe where he's not the first hero, he's he's not learning how to be a hero concurrently with everybody else. He's grown up in this world, and he's been enlisted into this team, and, you know, they had to follow every logical conclusion uh, to that, and they followed well, it to a T, but then they left us with a, a Peter that was absolutely comic, accurate, and exactly where... I think the diehard fans or the, the, the true believers really wanted him from the get-go.
0: couple of things. First off, I mean, you mentioned dropping him into this universe. This is how it would have had to go with the way that Robert Downey Jr. characterized Tony Stark. He would see Spider-Man as, ooh, new project, new toy, smart, I can mold him. And that's just <laughs> the, the ego of Tony in the MCU. Uh, and also him debuting before Spider-Man, which was not how it went in the comics. This is it's logical it makes sense it flows properly we're working backwards which is perfectly fine because this is our reaction and we saw the end of the movie last (laughs) (laughs) um so uh so it's freshest in our minds now uh that was the thing that i almost spoiled for you i really wanted to spoil for you the the end this being the first one with the classic spider-man swings through the city that all of the the garfield and toby uh, movies had ended on swinging through the city uh, I, I wanted to spoil that for you just because it was such a joyous moment. And, <laughs> it really and, and, was. And and because, you know, me saying that in text or over voice just doesn't get the context across of how it looks of him just skipping across the buildings and swinging across that, uh, you know, past that Christmas tree that Hawkeye destroyed. Uh, I, I still love that the Hawkeye fans were like, look, look, they take place in the same spot. There's going to be a crossover. Spider-Man's going to show up. Yep. Him and Mephisto. <laughs> Anyway, um exactly at the uh, same time. Yes, at the same time. Now, the thing that got me was where Peter is left at the end of this movie is he has no family, he has no friends, he has no acquaintances, he has nobody who remembers him in any way, shape, or form. Apparently, they don't remember that he was ever in school, but he still has enough paperwork to do a credit check for an apartment. Um, that's a little weird. Yeah, but (laughs) <laughs> people are cheering that Peter is now um, not homeless, but poor friendless. He could have gone back to the high school. He would just would have been the new kid that nobody remembered and making the costume and, you know, having absolutely no resources to his name. Um, they, they don't even suggest what he's doing for a job here. I mean, he's not going to be working for Jonah <laughs> right, uh, right. Under, the, under the circumstances that they've set up. So it's, I don't know. I mean, and there's, So much joy that Peter's life sucks. (laughs) Right. That is
1: weird. That is weird. I mean, I I felt like not since Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, had Peter really been so kind of clobbered emotionally. You know, there are times when you watch Spider-Man 2 where it's just hard to handle seeing him... So, so much piled onto him. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the end of this movie, it, it, I, it, it's hard for me to sort of take joy in it. I mean, I certainly took joy in the more, you know, homemade comics accurate costume. I took mm-hmm. joy in just seeing it end in such a classic way. I think, you know, it's funny that you bring up, you know, that this is the first of the Tom Holland movies to end with the the classic swinging sequence that the Maguire and Garfield movies ended with. Because really, I felt like this entire movie was sort of a love letter to the cinematic history of this character. I mean, it's funny to think that at this point, you can now add Spider-Man to the pantheon of characters that have a long and storied film history you know spider-man movies are not new anymore so when you think about somebody like james bond that has a long um history of of different interpretations or okay now i'm blanking on a character similar to james bond but (laughs) um
0: horror characters freddy krueger and they have sure yeah michael myers there's, there's, there's a
1: legacy there there's yeah. a cinematic legacy to Spider-Man and and this movie is is a tribute and an homage and a um a love letter to to that. So I think the fact that it ends with Peter kind of having that triumphant swinging which you know the other thing is is that a lot of times those swinging scenes as we've discussed on the podcast were really a way to not end on a super downer note that the story seemed to end on it was sort of a way to to have you walk out of the theater with your spirits lifted because we just saw him at his uncle's funeral or we just saw him you know have to leave the love of his life or or things like that so it was it was definitely fitting to end it that way but it was also fitting to end it as a kind of a love letter to the long history of this character uh, on screen
0: i want to say one other thing about the swinging sequence this is the first time, I think, that the, the CGI Spider-Man swinging through the city at the end of the sequence has looked like he's had weight.
1: He had, you know, form. He had weight. You know, you, you felt the feeling that um, he, he was reacting to the, the wind. It didn't seem like an animation.
0: It came a long way from Spider-Man in 2002 is what I'm For getting at. Sure. It, uh, it looked like an actual physical human being swinging and mm-hmm. dropping with a little gravity on the thread so yeah that was the end of the movie but we have more to talk about we have um five villains from mm-hmm. the previous movies six. not six and none of tom's villains right no no villain that tom has a personal connection to just toby's and andrew's and um thomas hayden church was only there in voice they used recycled footage and CGI. So he didn't well, have I think to- same
1: with with uh, re-siphons. That's that's recycled footage from uh, Amazing Spider-Man when he when he yeah. goes back to Kirk Connors. But they were
0: there, you know. I mean, they were uh, reading their new lines and everything, and that was uh, that was sweet. Uh, how about Willem Dafoe just being the goat? I
1: mean, talk about a performance
0: that you shouldn't be able to improve
1: on. I mean, and you know, I mean, it's it's just adding layers, right? But it was it was already a layered performance. And I think it just goes back again, the commitment to really bringing this character to life and the layers that we got. He probably, (laughs) in this film, absolutely does the worst things any villain has ever and maybe will ever do in a Spider-Man film. I mean, the atrocities that he commits are... I don't know why I'm dancing around. It's a spoiler episode, but he takes the place that, of the burglar. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, it, oh, God, it's just it's so brutal. But at the same time, you still feel for him. And you know what moment sticks with me? And I, I think uh, they're at Happy's Condo and Otto is kind of ranting at the, you know, sort of amateur hour banana stand of it all and says something like, you know, oh, you're going to cure us while you microwave a burrito or something like that. And, you know, Norman in this kind of sad sack vibe that he has as he's trying to cure himself of the madness, he just turns around and he goes, I could go for a burrito. And it's just <laughs> like such a sweet, funny, humanizing moment that only Willem Dafoe could have pulled off. And, you know, he, so he he just really commits to the descent into madness. When it's good, Norman, you really feel for him. And when it's evil Norman, he's just as, as so committed. And this is a 66-year-old where you can see he's clearly doing the majority of his stunts against, you know, Tom Holland, whatever he is now, 23, 24. And just as committed as he was in, in 2002 to the action, to the character, to the superhero, super villain-ness of it all. You know, it's it's just... Something that you shouldn't be able to have improved upon. He somehow added more layers and and improved upon it. And it's just remarkable.
0: And they gave him that purple hoodie, which actually improved yeah. the costume so much. It just made him look Good. more, oh, gravy, such a small design element, too. And it did so much. They destroyed the mask, which I could hear, you know, a generation of people going, <laughs> yeah, but um <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, he he is scarier without the mask and but I think adding the sort of purple robes that just sort of became the purple elements of the classic comic added to the film costume just a masterstroke. I mean, something I never would have thought of in a million years, but just by trying to sort of be the janky hobo version of the Goblin, uh, to quote Miles Morales from Into the Spider-Verse, or paraphrase Miles Morales, um, it just made it the most comics-accurate version of the Green Goblin we've ever had, maybe that we ever will, in terms of the costume, and Willem Dafoe, you don't need to put him in a mask, but also... Earning goat status, uh, Alfred Molina uh, oh, again. Goodness, a yes! Performance that shouldn't have been able to be. Th- there shouldn't have been more layers you could have added to it. I mean, it was already, you know, if anything, even more layered than than what they did uh, with Willem Dafoe and, and Green Goblin. I mean, I, I've always felt like Doc Ock in Spider-Man Two is is perhaps the best on screen supervillain because it's so layered and so. Emotional and really, for me, perhaps in a movie that's just filled with payoffs. So many things are paid off from eight different movies of three different franchises. The best payoff to me is when Good Otto sees Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker.
0: Oh, that that it made me tear up. You're all grown up. You're it all just... grown up. It just, it really brought a little, uh, you know, little Absolutely, squeak to my throat.
1: Man. Just trying to do better. I mean, you know, because this is really, I was thinking about it. This is the first time these two have seen each other since the night of the fusion reactor. You know, the, the, the night when Otto really kind of fell in love with Peter. Oh, Rosie, I love this boy. Like, that was the last time these two really had... Interaction, And then after that, it was it was evil Otto controlled by the arms. It was the arms. You know, Peter hadn't seen Otto since that night. And in just that little exchange, so much warmth, so much unspoken. You know, we've talked on the podcast about a, a, several different actors who can just do so much with a look. And Toby Maguire and Alfred Molina, with just a look, warmed my heart in the middle of a very chaotic and, and jam-packed scene. That, to me, was a standout. Of, of the, I mean, might be a standout of the entire franchise. Yeah, oh, just, yeah. Just a, just a great payoff.
0: Since we're talking about Molina and Defoe, how about the special effects that were de-aging them? I, there look. were close-ups. And mm-hmm. it was really solidly done. I mean, it took 20 years off. Uh, perfectly. This was better, maybe, than even the Michael Douglas or the Robert Downey Jr. So on. I and, think so. And, yeah.
1: This is easily, I think, the best de-aging. And I think it, it probably helps that uh, Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina have aged well, but you don't see any sort of digital seams. I think every de-aging that's happened so far, it's kind of gotten you like maybe 85, 90% of the way there. I think Kurt Russell. In Guardians of the Galaxy Two, maybe held the the record for for the closest to looking like twenty years had been removed, but these two fellas uh, in this movie, hundred percent seamless, you couldn't tell.
0: Absolutely. Now I want to mention something that actually did bother me about this movie, and I understand mm-hmm. yeah. why they did it. I completely understand why they did it, and it got a lot of. Uh, a lot of pop from the audience in, in many places. So, I mean, it's it's probably just me. But I think that they overdid it on callbacks to lines from the earlier movies. I did not like it. In fact, I winced when Defoe reprised his can Spider-Man come out to play. <laughs> I just like, how oh. come on! But on the other hand, with Otto saying the power of the sun in the palm of my hand, that I liked.
1: I liked it too, although I feel like he said it maybe five or six times, um, and it, well, I, I could I, have let used. Let
0: me say it again. I liked when he said it, and Toby finished the line when they got to that scene that you were talking about. That's where I liked. Correct.
1: It. Yes, that that was a great moment. And honestly, this as this is pure pandering, but I'm so glad they did it. I'm something of a scientist myself. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> I mean, as cheesy of that, a joke as ok, it, that worked we, right. That would work. I mean, that's such a meme moment at this point. I, I would have griped had they not done it. You know, it's funny because the line between fan service and pandering and payoff can be so thin and and you really got to thread the needle. And I think, movies like Endgame and and Spider-Man Far From Home really walked to the line of fan service and payoff. Um, there were a few times where they sort of overstepped the boundary of payoff and and went into sort of kind of shameless uh, pandering.
0: I also want to talk about uh, Andrew and Toby our uh, friendly neighborhood and Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> our friendly neighborhood youth pastor and uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Yes.
1: That was uh, hilarious <laughs> line. <laughs>
0: Um, so, again, I still feel bad that Andrew had to lie straight out so much yeah. caught between the uh, press tour and an NDA. But um, I was so glad to see him, and I was so glad to see the great reaction. And I think my favorite part from his introduction, when he met MJ and Ned, and mm-hmm. she threw the bread at him, <laughs> and demanded that he crawl <laughs> on the ceiling. But my favorite line, I think, from that scene was you're a very distrustful person and I respect that. <laughs> it
1: <laughs> you it know, felt that, so that, right. I think it felt so right because we talked uh, a lot about how sort of snarky and surly Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker could be. Sometimes the 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 humor was a little darker or a little more biting than what we I think were sort of expecting from Peter. And the fact that MJ, this movie's MJ and the amazing Spider-Man's Peter Parker sort of connected in their equally sort of dark sense of humor. It just, it, it, again, great payoff. Great payoff. And I think insightful. I think what I appreciated the most about bringing in the previous uh, Spider's Men was, first of all, nobody was there to do like a, a, a sort of a cameo. Nobody was there to just tick a box everybody gave a fully realized performance that added layers to their character. I can't remember if we talked about this either offline. I know we've talked about this offline. I can't remember if we talked about it on the air, but I really, really was hoping that they would get some mileage out of, uh, Tobey Maguire's Peter having organic webbing versus the mechanical webbing of Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield. And, they made me so happy like they totally delivered on all of the comedic potential of that contrast um, right and, up to the it, point
0: of toby saying are you making fun of me <laughs> no no right. we're not um I, I liked that with peter interacting with peter and peter it was like a little bit of psychological drama coming to terms with different parts of yourself. And I think the biggest laugh that I had, I mean, this got me a, a a big belly laugh in the theater, was Andrew grabbing the other two guys by the shoulder saying, I love you guys. And Tom and Toby, just both with an awkward, um, thank you. <laughs> 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 it It speaks to the type of Peter Parker that they each were. And, you know, I was thinking about this, all of the stuff that I didn't care for in the amazing films, it just goes to show that none of it was Andrew Garfield's problem. It was not it was not the issue. It was um I, I just I I found uh, issues with the writing and the situations that they put him in that didn't quite work. Now that said, I liked how haunted he was when he was explaining where he went after Gwen died. Eventually I stopped pulling my punches and he just looked upset with himself as he's telling you know this 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 poor younger version of himself that he lost somebody and 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 went dark 30 seconds but he got so much to chew on there
1: again kind of going back to uh what we're talking about in terms of how thoughtful they were in honoring the previous franchises they, they took where we left both characters uh allowed a little bit of closure, a little bit of growth. I mean, it it was great that they followed it up. And I think it was very rich, that little scene. And, you know, I I kept thinking in the back of my head, like, you know, I I feel like there are a lot of uh, the fanboys who always kind of want everything to be grimy, grim, dark, dark, who are just salivating for you know, a, a dark Spider-Man movie with Andrew Garfield not pulling his punches, um, which I hope we never get. But yeah, uh, it was it was great character development. It was and again, I mean, a payoff I was not expecting to not only get, but be really moved by, was uh, Andrew Garfield's Peter saving the falling MJ. And, the, and he the, just the, looked the,
0: so panicked when he saw it yeah. happening again. You know, it was just a wonderful response. He just, he looked like he was having a panic attack.
1: Right. And then the redemption of catching her and what that meant to relive that moment and have it end differently this time and all the emotions that flooded through. And, you know, it's such a great exchange of like, are you okay?" And then she's looking at him like, are you okay?" Uh, You know, it was a a great way to sort of diffuse how emotional it was. But for someone who, like you said, I mean, I have really conflicted feelings about The amazing duology was just not expecting to be so moved by that particular payoff. But it was one that the character and the franchise really deserved and earned. What's undisputed is that there's probably really not going to be another movie for a very long time that can equal the emotional weight of having, you know, characters from every franchise come back and come back in a way that wasn't just... You know, I I like to stay on the sunny side of the street, but, uh, you know, recently a few years ago, um, there was the the CW superhero shows had like a mega crossover where they brought a bunch of folks back. And really most of the most of the folks that got brought back, very few of them got to really have character moments. Very few of them got to add layers to the work they had done in the past. Most of them, it was kind of a winky cameo, and they ticked off a box to say they had that person. And, you know, in in, in some cases, it was a little disappointing. And I, I prepared myself to be perhaps a little disappointed the way I was with some of those Crisis on Infinite Earth cameos. Like, I was a huge Smallville fan when the show was airing. I really have always wanted to see... Tom Welling have a Superman moment a proper one and when it was announced that he was coming back to do this this crossover i kind of hoped against hope that i maybe i would finally get that Tom Welling Superman moment because fan service is such a big part of what these things are all about now and i thought well maybe they'll finally reward us after all this time they did not and it was in a lot of ways it was sort of like putting the nail in the coffin of ever seeing Tom Welling is Superman. So I prepared myself for the potentiality that maybe what I get of Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield in this movie will be ticking a box, a quick little thing. Maybe they won't be in it at all, or maybe it'll be a nail in the coffin of what I was hoping for. It was not that at all. It was literally everything I could have hoped for from these characters return and not, not just uh the two Peter Parkers, but all of those villains. Clearly Doc Ock and Green Goblin got the best arc and got the, the richest return. You know, Electro Jamie Foxx get, did get more.
0: He got he got more like, than he
1: got in the in the Amazing Spider Man
0: Much more. Uh much more. And you know he mean he got his uh his butt ass naked line. It was um it was a funny moment, and then you know they teed up the idea of uh, of a miles Morales somewhere out in the uh, multiverse uh, which was which One was of cute
1: my favorite exchanges you're from Queens, you save poor people, you have that outfit. I always thought you were black
0: <laughs> and Andrew Garfield, I'm sorry
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a brilliant way to sort of pay a nod to miles and and his absence in this movie and and everybody's sort of. Uh, a lot of fans hunger for for him to make a live action debut and i and i think that that line of you know there's got to be a black spider-man out there somewhere that's clearly kind of saying you know that cute lynn miranda just you wait you know Mm -hmm.
0: um sony's going to do it at some point but i think that they'll wait because right now spider-verse is is their miles project i think they'll wait until spider-verse has run its course and then they'll do a live action movie and you know what at this point I think that they're thinking of themselves, you know what? We could do Amazing Spider-Man 3 and we could do uh, Miles Morales in a movie called Ultimate Spider-Man and we could do those and they don't need to have anything to do with each other. Or maybe they could imagine that. Imagine uh, Amazing Spider-Man 3 and then Ultimate Spider-Man and you get a movie called Spider-Man and it's Andrew Garfield with Miles Morales. They could do that. That way they have their MCU cake and they eat it too. You know, they could go in many directions um, because, I was trying to think, we were talking about this, out of all the characters that Sony has with their Spider-Man license, very few of them comparatively could carry a movie. So, right. um, so I think that they probably will uh, start doubling up their their Spider-Man here and, and, you know, do a little bit more with Andrew Garfield if he's into it. Or maybe even, you know, they're, they're talking about doing an animated Spider-Man 4.
1: You know, mm-hmm. and I thought it was interesting. Uh, obviously, all of these characters, all of the villains, get brought in right at the point where they were about to die. Uh, whereas the two Spider Men, they, they they didn't die, so they are brought in in the current time. And it was interesting to see sort of a forty-three-year-old Toby Maguire talking to Otto. Who may be kind of close to his age at that point. You know what I mean? Like they they yeah. they're they're not a mentor and student anymore. They're they're peers. You get um, a little field
0: of uh, dreams vibe. Yeah. Have I a catch mean, with they, the octopus arms. There's so much arms. potential
1: to go. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I know I just I started imagining you want to have a catch, then the octopus arms or the, I just <laughs> what a terrible brain I have. But yeah, no, I, and I liked I liked hearing where Toby's uh, Peter Parker went. It's a complicated relationship, but he's still with MJ. I like happy endings in the stories that I watch. I like seeing happy endings in the stories that I watch. So it was nice to hear that.
1: It's fun because Spider-Man 3 ended kind of ambiguous. And uh, I I read a really interesting article with the screenwriters of No Way Home. Maybe we'll we'll tweet it out from the Webhead podcast where they discussed the input that both uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield had on the development of the script. Uh, they both agreed to reprise their roles before a script had really been finalized or, or was even long, very long in development. And Andrew Garfield was really passionate about giving some details about what life was like for Peter after losing Gwen. Um, whereas Toby McGuire in, in a lot of ways, was just as passionate about sort of honoring the life-goes-on ambiguity of Spider-Man three's ending where he, he really didn't want to kind of, I think ruin anybody's head cannon. I really tried to keep my expectations low of what I was hoping for, for this movie. I did not want to be disappointed. Uh, the two things that I was sort of hoping against hope that I was really allowing myself to get excited about both happened and, and both paid off. One I've already mentioned was the organic webbing versus mechanical webbing. The other one, Charlie Cox's Matt Murdoch as Peter's lawyer. There is still a court of public opinion. S- yep, so I
0: was so happy. So happy to see it. So great.
1: I never thought in a million years that Matt Murdoch would suit up, but the bottom line is, uh, catching the brick was sort of as close to a nod as we were going to get. And it was just an absolute hoot. And then, of course, I didn't realize until like a week later. That John Favreau had played in the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie, so um, you know it's funny Favreau went from foggy to happy. I'm sure we'll see Matt Murdock again in many different capacities, but I would love it if uh, if we did get at some point a Spider-Man and Daredevil moment, if not a proper team up.
0: We are really hewing towards like about a fifth of the movie which is fine right. but um so so much of the stuff that i enjoyed was in the beginning peter being freaked out because his secret being blown kept his friends from getting into mit himself as well but his friends for crying out loud yeah. were kept and the guilt he felt on that so he decides to do something huge which is very peter parker so he goes to doctor strange and asks him to make everybody forget We know how that setup worked Uh, we've seen the commercials but the bit that i liked was how angry dr strange got when he said you asked me to brainwash (laughs) the entire world and you didn't call them to plead your case first i laughed so hard because of course that's not going to be the kind of thing that peter thinks of it's too simple and of course dr strange is going to be angry because he'll assume that peter was smart enough to think of it I loved that. I loved that so much. I love Benedict Cumberbatch's performance with Peter. There were two moments um, that we've talked about. One, when he absolutely loses his temper and tells Peter, call me sir. And then at the end of the movie, he softened on Peter. He realizes what Peter is sacrificing, which we'll talk about in a minute. And he says, call me Stephen. It's such a small thing, but it was such a nice thing. It was a nice payoff. And what Peter did was he asked for everybody who ever knew peter parker to forget him so everybody forgot peter parker his best friend forgot him happy forgot him he didn't get to go to may's funeral because why would they invite some random dude and the the love of his life uh forgot him everybody forgot him i tell you man that is uh he's paying a lot for a mistake which again is also very perfectly peter parker
1: so much of the core of the character is trying to atone for a mistake that he can never atone for i think a big theme of no way home is that you can't you can't run away from your problems oftentimes trying to run away from your problems or erase your problems just makes them worse and the fact that that led to you know his ultimate mistake that he'll never be able to atone for was a really moving execution of of that core element of the character and i got really emotional when may was was explaining that you know even though she's suffering for it she still really stands behind her conviction that the right thing to do was to help these characters to help these you know villains she didn't think of them as villains she thought of them as people that needed help not needed defeating and even when they hurt her, she still honored that conviction. And at this point, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. It's become a cliche. You know, people can roll their eyes. It, it, it maybe has lost a little bit of his power. I would really argue that this was the most meaningful rendition of that line, certainly in film history. Hearing May say that. And, and, Finally, for the first time, saying it accurately to the original comic, that with great power must also come great responsibility, I was emotional more so than I think any other time that somebody had said that to Peter, but also... Knowing what saying that means, you know, any, any character who says that to Peter, of course, we always expect it to be Uncle Ben. But whoever says that to Peter, they're not long for this world. So, you know, I mean, you, you could kind of fool yourself into thinking that, you know, May was going to recover. But once she said that line, I knew this was her her final uh, moment with Peter, and um, it was really, really emotional and. Uh, Marissa Tomei just did such a phenomenal job. For that to be her final moment in the franchise, uh, she she really went out with just a beautiful and emotional moment.
0: She did. Also, I just wanted to say I really appreciated that the movie pushed Strange's opinion, no, it's their fate, you need to send them back and they got to die, versus Peter's, well, why can't I help them? That's something I don't think we've seen in the movies stated explicitly. You know,
1: yeah, exactly. I think that that for the longest time, heroes, typically superheroes, have been kind of cavalier in terms of taking the lives of their enemies, and it was really about defeating the enemy. Even when it made sense, you know, like every comic book, the heroes won't kill. But then when they made it to the screen, you know, a character like Iron Man, a character like Captain America. You can see where they come from a worldview where killing a, an adversary is, is not really out of character. But I think Peter Parker kind of always needs to have that moral high ground. And, and well, that, not high ground, but just moral fortitude that he really does not want to take a life. If he can find any other way to resolve the situation and yeah, conflict resolution versus defeating uh, is not something that we've seen in a lot of superhero movies, even though arguably that's kind of what superheroes should really be about.
0: I agree. I also liked that Peter 2 and Peter 3 also got a chance to save the villains that had died. I mean, you know, the lizard didn't die, but Electro did. Uh, You know, they they were just given a chance to save everybody as well as saving MJ from the drop. All of these things, all of them getting a chance to get back that little piece of themselves that they lost when somebody died. It was worth a lot to see, and I really appreciated it. Um, A friend of mine... We've talked about this. Uh, we were initially going to record a short discussion that I was going to have you react to, but our schedules didn't line up. Uh, my friend Chelsea, who is a uh, an artist and puppeteer and just a all-around wonderful human being, her thoughts about the ending of this movie. Now, Peter uh, told Strange to make everybody forget who he was. And as he's saying goodbye to Ned and saying goodbye to MJ, saying that they won't remember him, they're saying, find us, make us remember. We want to remember you. We want to be in your life. Come to us. And Peter does go to them. MJ is still working at her coffee shop. Her and Ned are geeking out over getting into MIT. She's still wearing the necklace that he got her in Far From Home. And um, she doesn't know him. And he has yeah. a speech repaired. And he just stuffs the speech back into his pocket and orders a coffee. My friend Chelsea, her argument was that he had no right to do that. He knew what their wishes were. And he did not have a right to go against their wishes, it was selfish of him to do that, knowing what they wanted. And as she said, just because you can't remember something (laughs) doesn't mean that it has no bearing. And that's an interesting point. I can understand why Peter did what he did, but I can also Mm -hmm. see her argument. Where do you think? Is this just because he's too young to appreciate it? Do you think that they'll eventually have MJ and Ned pulled back into the fold Uh, You know, even though they're up in Boston, but um, probably, you know, the next trilogy. What do you think? Was Peter right or was Peter wrong?
1: I think it's an interesting question because they're asking a lot of him to convince a perfect stranger that they used to love you, um, whether it's it's platonic friendship love like Ned and Peter had or, you know, romantic love that MJ and Peter had. That's a big ask to convince a perfect stranger that you had a deep connection until a wizard erased their memory of you. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty surefire way to get tased or, or sent to uh, lockup. But um, so my, my feeling was I, I went into it or I left the, that scene feeling like rather than trying to convince them of what happened, he's making the choice to, organically try to recreate those um, relationships or those friendships in the future. Plant seeds rather than just show up and be like, here's the tree, you know. Also, though, I think what uh, your friend Chelsea's thoughts about that scene really reminded me of is something not only that, that they said, you know, find us and remind us of of who who you were you know find us in, and integrate back into our lives early in the film mj w- with ned in the room so i feel like he was in agreement mj made a very clear next time you want to do something that changes our lives talk to us about it so that you know we can we can weigh in on that so that we can prepare for that so that we can maybe come up with a better solution. Um, And yet again, the film ends with Peter doing something that changes their lives irrevocably without their input. Now, obviously he really couldn't have taken time out as Dr. Strange was trying to, you know, keep all of these other, people coming from all these other different universes to swing over to Ned and MJ and say like, Hey, what, what would you guys think if I made you forget me? You know, he didn't really have time to honor that, but it was still, you know, sort of a, a thing where he did something to MJ and Ned that he was explicitly asked not to.
0: Well, he did. He stole bits of their lives. Um, Yeah, A large bit in Ned's case and the thing is, you're you're saying, you know, how, how are they going to believe? Well, this is a world where uh, an alien came down, put on one glove like Michael Jackson, and erased them for five years from existence. For sure. So I, for if sure. Spider-Man drops in front of them, takes off his mask, says, "You, you guys used oh. to know me. You were my best friend. You were my girlfriend," and there was a situation where you forgot everything, they might be willing to take that. I mean, they they'd be skeptical, but Peter telling them things about them. That he knows, you know, that would be something. Like MJ and the necklace. Where did she get the necklace? She got it in Venice. Who gave it to her? She didn't buy it. She didn't remember buying it. Why does she have the necklace? Why does it mean something to her? That can fill in gaps in the memory that you aren't taking a close look at. Something happened. You uh, don't necessarily know what it was. But this person can explain it. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it was a good point.
1: I do agree There's a good point. The flip side of that is that while everybody's memory... Of Peter Parker has been erased. The world still thinks that Spider-Man is a murderer. The world still thinks that Spider-Man killed Mysterio with lots of other people in London with with these drones. Um, so who who knows if Spider-Man swings down and takes off his mask and says, "We used to be friends." If they don't run screaming from you know this person that they they at this point might be afraid of. I I don't know. It, it's an interesting. Tact. And I, I really do, you know, the way this movie ended, I thought it was really smart because this could they could never do another uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man film. Uh, he's not contractually obligated at this point, f- as far as we know. And they left this film in a way where it could just be a life goes on moment, you know, sort of like the ending of Smallville, where, you know, he flies off into the sunset and you're just there to kind of imagine what the future adventures are or they could pick it right up. And we get to see a whole trilogy of him winning MJ back and, you know, reconnecting with Ned and and so on and so forth.
0: It's it's just a moral tact. Does he have the responsibility to keep them safe or does he have the responsibility to follow what he knows their wishes are? And, you know, that's a moral conundrum if I have ever heard one. And it's, it's you know, I I honestly, I understand why he did what he did. I don't know where I would come down, but he just lost his only family and it was his fault in many ways that she died bringing the goblin uh, in close, even though she told him to do it. So, you know, I mean, I can, I can see why he was, he was sensitive as well. I mean, Tony died in his arms, Aunt May died in his arms, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, that, that was something else that was brought up. All of the things you saw Peter do in homecoming and far from home, they're like, what are you thinking kid? Well, he never got the uh, great power, great responsibility speech yet. So, you know, I'm
1: curious about that. I mean, I we we've had the conversations about sort of the things that they hint at, and then of course, I was always like, do we know for sure if it's Ned Leeds? Well, now we do. Do we know for sure that it's, you know, Mary Jane Watson? You know, or I, you know, I think we both thought that that was a a, a plan, a name, and now we see that that she is Michelle Jones Watson, who goes by MJ because I think she prefers the Jones uh, side of her of her heritage. But, um, you know, that that moment in Civil War where Peter says, when you can do the things I do and you don't do them and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. I mean, that that always felt like a roundabout way to to have a, you know, with great power comes great responsibility moment. But we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure if Uncle Ben's death was Peter's fault uh, on some level. I mean, I I still would like to think that it was, but uh, I guess then that that is also kind of dark in the sense that now both Uncle Ben and Aunt May's death uh, are uh, Peter's fault.
0: <laughs> I felt bad for Happy. Yeah. <laughs> Happy. yeah. Happy just had bad luck throughout this whole movie. I mean, he was dumped. He lost, well, we'll, we'll call her the love of his life at that time, uh, and he doesn't even know why. He knew her through Spider-Man, and that was it. Um, something else that I got that, uh, really made me chuckle was Happy and May's reactions to catching Peter and MJ in the room in various states of undress. It was completely innocent, but it was an absolutely hilarious (laughs) reaction. The two, the two differing (laughs) responses, poor Happy, poor May. It was uh, a lot of fun to see that bit. Now we've talked about, I mean, we've talked around just about the entirety of the movie. And I feel yep. uh, feel good about that. I we didn't do so much that when we actually get to breaking it down, I think we'll we'll still have plenty to talk about. But um, I mean I, I I loved No Way Home. It made everything made sense. Um, it was great seeing Toby and Andrew again, it was great seeing the villains again. It was interesting. I didn't really feel super connected to the <laughs> to the mid credits scene. <laughs>
1: Oh boy! Oh. You know what was funny to make credit scene to me? Because I mean, it, it's almost on the the trolling level of uh, homecomings post credit scene. So many people were so excited when you know, spoiler for uh, Venom, there will be carnage when uh, Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock and Venom get sucked into the MCU world. Everybody thought, oh, this is like the Kong versus Godzilla. They're setting up Spider-Man versus Venom. And they yeeted that away from the fans (laughs) so fast. Um, But of course, they did leave a little bit of symbiote there. And, you know, maybe it'll find its way from the resort to uh, Manhattan and Peter's apartment to have a black suit saga, or maybe it'll cover up uh, Danny Rojas and, uh, you know, it'll be, you know, Symbiota's life who, who, who knows where they go from there, if they go anywhere at all. But the fact that that mid credit scene kind of, you know, yeeted away Venom and Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock, just as quickly as as he was brought into the MCU, it was just more funny to me than anything else. Of like, you know, it, it just seemed cruel to the to the fans who who really do want to see uh, Tom Hardy's Venom go up against Tom Holland's Spider Man. Um, I have no dog in that hunt, but uh, I, I did feel a little bit of remorse for the folks who do because uh, that that was just kind of
0: cruel. I do love a, a well executed psych. Uh, long story short, we loved No Way Home. Uh, but we're marks. How were we not going to love this movie? It would have had to be complete garbage. And then we probably still <laughs> would have found something to enjoy about it because it is Spider-Man. We would have found okay. something to enjoy. Yes. So uh, we're not done. We're going to talk some comics here in just a second. And uh, because it is the new year, uh, it is 2022. It is January as we record this. Hopefully, I get it up before you know August. But uh, right. time for new beginnings. So we're going to talk about some of our favorite Spider-Man new beginnings in the comics. There's been a lot of new beginnings for Spider-Man. New number ones, different characters popping in to take over the name, new costumes, new storylines that go off into radically different directions. Tons, tons of new beginnings. And, um, I have mine. I have I have the one that I picked that I thought was my favorite new beginning for the status quo of Spider-Man. And you have yours. Let's hear yours first.
1: I have two that I wanted to discuss. Um, the one to me that always stands out, all of the Marvel comics did this really fascinating thing where they jumped a year ahead. And this was really to set up um, the Secret Wars crossover, the first big... Marvel crossover. We jumped ahead a full year in the comics to find that, um, you know, all, all of our heroes had been off world for a full year. Nobody in the Marvel comics universe knew where they had been for a year. And you had to read this, this you know, series, uh, Secret War, to find out what happened during that year. But equally as cool, I mean, I love Secret Wars, but equally as cool was this, first of all, Spider-Man comes back from being gone for a year with this brand new suit that is alive. Pretty cool. (laughs) Um, And the mystery of how he got it and what the origin of that uh, had repercussions that, you know, has left an indelible mark on the character. It was so unheard of. I feel like now... The sort of this changes everything trope has has really become a cliche in comics. And, you know, comics have kind of suffered for you hadn't even been doing the last thing that long to change everything. Like it almost doesn't have as much uh, weight when things are changing every six to eight months. Up to that point, there really hadn't been the reading that I had done. Such a drastic this changes everything moment. And and so it just always kind of stands out to me as a as a great new beginning moment. The other one that I'm a huge fan of, and I've talked about this issue on the podcast before, is uh Amazing Spider-Man 243. And I, I love that new beginning for two uh reasons. Number one uh, that that's an issue that ends with Peter deciding to leave grad school. You know, combination of money problems and just not being able to find the right balance between being Spider-Man and being Peter Parker. That's a whole new beginning and one that really just felt like the kind of new beginning that is is not necessarily as positive uh, as you might want to see your your heroes have, but at the same time one that just feels real and feels grounded and makes the character relatable. Um, and the other thing that was a kind of a new beginning was that was when Mary Jane came back into Peter's life. She had been absent from the comics for quite some time and made a really bold return in that issue. And that led to ultimately them first rekindling a friendship, then rekindling a romantic relationship and eventually getting married. So. That particular comic, Amazing Spider-Man 243, had two really significant new beginnings for Peter.
0: And that leads into mine. Um, My new beginning was uh, Amazing Spider-Man annual number 21, where Peter and MJ did get married. That is a huge change in status quo for Peter to actually be married. And honestly, as much as people hate it for the soap opera stuff, a character who is as synonymous with responsibility, I, I think marriage is kind of appropriate for him. Maybe you know you don't go I couldn't the full agree nine more. Yeah, maybe you don't go the full nine and and, and make him a parent in, in you know the quote unquote present day, but being married just just feels like the right path. And honestly, I think Peter would be to his spouse as Hawkeye was to Laura in the Hawkeye show. Mm-hmm. Uh, call her up, say, Yeah, nope, still got some problems going on. I'm not gonna be able to make it home. And she says, "Take care of yourself." And there's no lies, and and it's a healthy, functioning relationship. And that's kind of what I would see for Peter. Although, like I said, uh, folks folks want the dysfunction in the soap opera, and I understand that it's a long-standing trope. But responsible Peter, I just feel like he would be the type of character to be married. It was uh, it, it was a great annual. I remember where I was when I got it. I traded a couple of comics that I don't recall with another kid in uh we we were off doing challenge which is you know like the the gifted and talented program i enjoyed it man it's just like spider-man got married this is cool let's see what happens and it just it was it was something new it was something different and i don't care what arguments you have against it i'm always going to think it was the right move i know that it was a a little bit of a bump for the comic strip and stan requested it but i still think it was right and uh didn't he get married at shea stadium in the newspaper strip no, 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 no. In real life, they did a publicity stunt at oh, Shea Stadium with actors right. one dressed as Spider-Man, one actually in that that dress that uh, MJ is wearing. And um, yeah, I don't think uh, even Superman had as big a uh, a bounce when he got married on the TV show and then in the comics to Lois Lane. This was, this was made a bigger deal of, I think, which is weird. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, Stan capitalized on it more, you know, and I... I, I always loved going back and seeing the things that they would um, do with uh, the photo ops or the little media events they would do, you know, Peter in a or it was, it was with somebody in a Spider-Man suit.
0: The most famous picture of Stan, you know, just lip out given Spider-Man the the evil eye. It was it was a famous picture of Stan Lee and Spider-Man, a black and white picture. Uh, you've probably seen it in promotional shots, but the person mm-hmm. who was under that Spider-Man costume. It was Chris Sanders. Animator Chris Sanders, also known as the director and voice of Stitch in Lilo and Stitch. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so Chris Sanders <laughs> was the Spider-Man in the costume and after Stan died, he he revealed that on uh, his blog he told the whole story. Oh, I got to look that up. That's great. It's 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 something I was just like it's a small world after all. Anyway, that is it for this daily bugle special edition of the friendly neighborhood webhead podcast. We've gone a good chunk of time, and again, hopefully, I'll be able to get this edited and up and out to the listeners before August of 2025. And <laughs> uh, you know, so we're hoping, we're hoping that that's going to be before before Tom Holland finishes his next trilogy. This episode will be on the air. That much I can promise you. We're going to point you now to where you can find us on the internet. You can email us at any time for any reason even if you're a spam bot, which we'll delete, but we, we still welcome your input. Cinemaspidey <laughs> at mail.com. You can tweet to us, twitter.com at webheadpodcast. You can send us a voice message, anchor.fm slash webheadpodcast. And now you can even follow us on Instagram. We're putting up little bits and bobs and fan art and memes and so on over on Instagram. It's also at webheadpodcast, so we make it easy for you. I can be found on uh, Twitter, at Eric Burnham, my, uh, my name. It's right there. It's probably written around somewhere on this uh, show page, so you can find that. It's also on Instagram, and that's that's good enough. That's, that's where you can find me. Sir, where can they find you?
1: Instagram and uh, my Facebook art page have the same name, which is Ethan Drew That, as in Ethan was the person who illustrated that, and then uh, on Twitter... At Ethan Culture Muro. and of course, uh, you will need the reference of how to spell that on the Anchor FM Webhead podcast page. <laughs> but uh, yeah. would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Love to hear your thoughts on our thoughts. Tell us what you think. Send us that that uh, voice message. Um, we're 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 here for you.
0: All right. Next time you hear from us, which is still you know a bit of a mystery. Hopefully, no other curses come down upon our heads. home renovations illnesses deadlines you know dogs and cats living together it was a lot of craziness but we will be back with our thoughts on the big capper to the infinity saga infinity war and endgame big story for peter parker at least infinity war was and we're going to cover that because without it far from home just doesn't have the same level of punch so uh infinity war and endgame next time on the friendly neighborhood webhead podcast
1: see you soon friends (whistles) WHISTLE BLOWS